0: Hey there, and welcome back to War Starts Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' philographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Hello. And Peterson Hill. Hello. Guys, what are we bantering about today?
1: Well, Chris, we called in some reinforcements this time. Chris Reeves from the Casual Cinecast podcast is joining the crew because today's review is what we call a global killer. I'm talking the end of cinematic kind. We've got to drill 800 feet down into the depths of the Criterion Collection Archive to discuss, and probably debate, Criterion spine number 40. That's right, I'm talking about Michael Bay's testosterone-fueled epic of patriotic pornography, Armageddon.
2: Plus, we've got the perfect beer to pair with this dose of Interstellar Roughneck Bayham. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations.
0: But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. Welcome back. It's been a while.
1: I know. It's been too long.
0: It has. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we've got someone new joining us on uh, War Starts Midnight in perpetuity. Peterson Hill, welcome aboard.
2: I'm excited to be here kind of full time with you guys. We've been talking about this for, I guess, about a year.
0: It's probably been, actually, you know what, it's been over a year at this point.
2: I think it's since my last rewatch of Armageddon. (laughs)
0: Peterson i'm really excited to have you on board uh with this magnificent anderson series that we have coming up and uh, everything we've got coming up in the in the future and midnight warriors for those of you who may not be uh totally up to speed on what we're talking about here we have a new series that we're just about to launch uh where we're going to go through chronologically kind of back and forth through the films of paul thomas anderson and wes Anderson. Why? Because we can Um, really, I mean, Wes Anderson is, is my favorite director. I have a really soft spot in my heart for him. Uh, Peterson, you are a huge PTA fan, probably the biggest PTA fan I know.
2: Yeah, he's, he's probably my favorite director. I mean, he may have supplanted uh, Scorsese by this point. Um, Really? He's just, he's, yeah. Like he's just one of those guys that. Every time I watch these movies, they they grow on me and grow on me and grow on me.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it. And then we've got Jake who uh how many PTA films have you seen, Jake?
2: Uh, enough.
0: Really, my goal of this series is to bring you around on PTA.
2: I don't know if the second half is gonna help.
0: I don't know. I, I think I think we can I honestly, I think the hurdle is Magnolia.
2: Yeah. I don't know. The master's uh it's a weird. I mean, that's an odd, odd little duck.
0: The the master is its own thing. We'll we'll burn that bridge when we get to it.
1: Look, you know my complaint with him is that he has a dark, cynical worldview, in my opinion, which is why I am more drawn to movies like Armageddon. So, you know what? Ben Affleck also said at the end
2: of Armageddon. Actually, you know what? In the director's commentary, when he was talking about the Americana bit in the middle. He has a dark and cynical worldview too.
0: Oh yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to get a better segue than this guys. <laughs> we were here to, to discuss the, the seminal criterion collection release Armageddon spine number 40. Uh, it's an out of print DVD at this point. So it's a collector's item, but you know, Armageddon, it's a, it is a hefty film to take on. And so I felt it would probably be best to bring on someone, you know, we, 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 typically here on war starts midnight aren't aren't talking about such astute classics from the criterion collection as this
1: and remember we're only the best because we work with the best
0: (laughs) with that in mind uh decided to invite on chris reeves he's a co-host of the casual cinecast podcast chris welcome to the show very glad to have you on
3: oh it's great to be here guys i really appreciate you asking me on
0: Chris, tell us a little bit about what you guys do on Casual Cinecast.
3: We have kind of two shows. We have the Casual Cinecast, which we cover the main movies that are coming out in the theaters uh, on a regular basis uh, weekly. And then once a month, we have the Casually Criterion. We each pick a film and we let the people vote on what film from the Criterion Collection we should watch and review on our show. So once a month, we do the Casually Criterion I'm actually glad that we get to do Armageddon today because I I have no idea when we're ever going to get to that on our (laughs) Casual Criterion. That and The Rock are like two big question marks. Uh, We'll see when we get to it. But yeah, I'm excited to do Armageddon.
0: I have no idea where this discussion is going. Like there are so many variables up up in the air now, other than the fact that Jake is like a diehard fan. And I'm pretty sure has recommended Armageddon on this show before at least two to three times.
1: It, I may make it four today. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to see how it goes. But I may recommend you just go home and watch it again. I'm so excited to talk about this movie.
0: All right, well, let's just dive in.
4: Houston, this is freedom. Do you copy? Working on a remote satellite like at this moment. Transmission change. 20 on. minutes. Puts drilling. Final at 10 hours. Please advise. That's four hours past zero barrier. Please advise. What the hell is this? The zero depth. And where'd this come from? Who are you talking to? Is that Truman? Let me have that phone. Give me the phone. Truman, look. This is what happens when you drill. We cannot use your U.S. Air Force personnel only drill time card. Who wrote this thing, by the way? We're losing comms look, again. Is he getting this? Does he hear me? What's wrong with this? I'm stunned. What do you mean the comms dead? What do I mean? I mean we've lost communication to Mission Control. Fine. Controls. Let's go back to the cargo bay. And get the transmission. Hey, hey, hey. I guess what? You had your shot. You didn't do it. You understand me? Why don't you stay here and take... Oh, on the, drill don't think supplies, write a report, why don't you? That'll Write a do Whatever want do. But it is to my men and I will go and get this whole though. You and your men are the biggest mistake in the history of NASA. We've lost communication. We're not looking too good right now. No
1: shit. All right, so... I am obviously super excited to talk about this and have very, very uh, positive opinions and memories about this movie. But before we get into it, I'm just curious what all of your experiences are with Armageddon. I'm assuming we've all seen this play a thousand times on TBS growing up. And that is your primary way of having consumed this movie. But it it was really much maligned when it came out. I remember hearing a lot of negative things. I remember the first time I watched it. I didn't I, I was like, oh, this isn't scientifically accurate. This isn't how things would go and had a negative opinion and it was only through those repeated rewatches that I came to appreciate it for the for the many positive things that I'll say about it today. But but maybe start off with uh with you, Chris. Um what how, how did you or like what are your memories of Armageddon? Yeah, so I actually watched The Rock first, you know, uh, and that's my introduction
3: into Michael Bay and Armageddon. R-rated movies (laughs) for that. I saw it in the theater. (laughs) Uh, I remember leaving the theater full of adrenaline after I saw The Rock. Uh, I actually have to be, I'm thankful for Armageddon (laughs) because uh, when I watched it, I was in high school. I went to the theater and um, it really (laughs) pushed me into looking into more about film and like reading Roger Ebert's reviews on the films and Uh, Because I I didn't particularly like it, Uh, and I wanted to know why. Why didn't it work for me? And so that was kind of uh, my younger years as I started reading reviews. So I owe a
1: lot to Armageddon in my movie uh, journey. (laughs) It's interesting because The Rock is one of the first, I guess, R-rated movies I saw in theaters as well. And I don't think I've seen it, but maybe one time since. So I'm, I'm really excited to review, like revisit that at some point as well.
0: Maybe we'll have a uh, Chris back on because <laughs> once again, another criterion <laughs> collection release, maybe, Perfect. maybe the Michael Bay movie that deserves to be in the criterion collection more, but maybe we can get that <sighs> later. Peterson, your first time with uh, Armageddon. Yeah.
2: So I definitely saw it in theaters. Um, I was the youngest of four and my dad and I's thing was always going to the movies. He would take me to the movies pretty much every Sunday. So The Rock was definitely not the first R-rated movie I saw in the theaters, but it was, I don't know, like the 30th. He should take me, (laughs) as long as, as basically as long as there was no boobs, like, he was pretty okay with me going to see an R-rated movie. Um, I remember Pulp Fiction was the one time he said, maybe you need to leave the room, Um, (laughs) which is probably wise looking back. But so, for me, yeah, Armageddon is one of those movies I remember owning on VHS. So I don't think I ever saw it on TV. I watch it all the time. Uh, As a kid, because I was 11 when it came out, 12, like when it came out on video, and I watched it all the time. Like, I haven't seen this movie until last year, probably like 15, 16 years, and I remember beat for beat moments of it. So Mm -hmm. it was one of those movies that I don't know if it was seminal, but I remember kind of when I was that age, starting to read reviews as an 11 year old, which is probably a strange thing. Um, And then reading it in the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it was a C-minus, and then I went and saw it, and I was like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> um, and it's one of those movies that's kind of stuck with me. It's uh, kind of been a seminal film, and I'll get to whether or not it's a seminal film for me still, but mm-hmm. it was definitely one of those movies that kind of did shape the certain like texture of uh, what I watched for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then if it would have come out three years later, I probably would have snickered at it and been like, what, what is this? But it came out when I was 11, right at that right time where I did not become too much of a film snob where I was going to push things away. And then obviously I came back a little while later and I was like, well, okay, popcorn films are great too. But, you know, in that 15 to 18 to 19 range, I was like, you know, art house films were where it's at. So, so that's where I'm at for Um If I preferred over the rock, I don't know. Uh, I love. I, I did love The Rock when I was young too. Um, Stanley Goodspeed, Nicholas Cage.
0: Ooh man. Okay, so I'm probably just kind of gauging the the room here. I may be the person who has seen this movie the least because honestly, I think in full I've only seen it once, and that was probably seventh grade. Uh-huh. Eighth grade,
1: that, that makes sense. Yeah,
0: I remember thinking it was fine, but like not being totally like pulled into it. And then like, well, and then broken record of like old school. Uh, War starts at midnight. We didn't have cable when I was a kid, so I didn't see it <laughs> much growing up. Um, and you know, I would catch it on TNT or whatever, like on the weekends, you know, in college or whatnot. But like. I was amazed watching it through this time how much I didn't remember of this movie.
1: And and watching it this time, I I had a little bit of a similar experience. Not that there was things that I didn't remember, but it was stitched together so well in a way that it it really is a a movie that you can cut up and show on TV with a lot of commercials because it's a bit episodic the whole way through. And just seeing it flow all together, I, I really appreciated that. And it's a much different experience than I had growing up.
2: It's like nine different short films spliced together. It's like 15-minute increments where it's the strike on New York and then kind of the introduction. And then every 15 minutes, it's like a new set piece or a new kind of thing to overcome or a new piece of information they're learning. And I think that's one thing that kind of keeps it moving pretty quickly. Now, I wouldn't have caught that when I was 11 because I was like – God, these explosions are
4: right. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm glad you brought that up because I, I had the same thought this time but but it was kind of influenced by you know just how we consume media today when I was done watching this movie I felt like I binged watched a series I felt <laughs> like I saw so many things that kind of evolved over the course of it it really could be like a 10 episode HBO series something like that if you had that production value because it does evolve a lot over it and it doesn't fit into I don't feel like it fits into like a three-act structure. It feels like a five-act kind of thing. Five-act? So, I, yeah, I it's like 17. You th- <laughs> <laughs> but it had so many things, it just evolved over the course of the movie.
0: It's a lot of vignettes kind of pieced together. And I will say, so I know, Jake, I, I've been playing my cards pretty close to the chest all week as we've been kind of discussing, not discussing this. And, you know... Going into this review, I thought, well, what do I have to lose? I really do not care for this movie. I think it's highly overrated for, you know, the fact that it has a Criterion Collection release. Um, I'll say I feel like I like this movie more now than I thought I did before I revisited. Okay. I mean, I, I think a lot of that is I, you know, I don't think Michael Bay is a bad director i think he is a director who does he's very proficient at a certain style that is generally not my cup of tea and i think this is a fine display of him kind of nailing that style particularly like this is the first time that michael bay made a pg-13 film Mm-hmm. and if you look at his filmography since then it's mostly been PG13 films mm-hmm. uh you know he made bad boys which was a pretty big hit especially you know going off of the budget of it and then he made the rock which was pretty good but then Armageddon was a smash and then he goes into PG13 movie after PG13 movie of just i mean and if you look at his sort of his budgets and his uh what he's what his films are making at the box office, his bread and butter is the big, ballsy PG thirteen, high testosterone sort of sort of film. Um and so I think it's interesting to look at this as like the germ of what we get from Michael Bay later because I think this is the first time that he is thinking about the entire scope of an audience so he's thinking about okay how do i appeal to adults how do i appeal to children how do i appeal to teenagers how do i appeal to everyone so that i keep them all entertained and keep juggling all of that and i had this weird this really weird thought as i'm watching it is michael bay kind of shakespeare (laughs) okay you know playing to all of his crowds, giving a little fart joke in there, or he has, you know, Optimus Prime peeing on John Turturro or, you know, like he kind <laughs> of, he blends all of this stuff together to try to appeal to everyone. And even like, uh, I think we all listen to at least some of the, the commentary from the criterion collection disc, He even he talks about this a bit and about, you know, how, oh, well, I did this scene because I thought the kids would like it. I knew adults would think it was kind of wacky, but I thought the kids would like it. Or I did this because we need to appeal to, you know, we need to add some romance. Titanic had just come out. And so we needed to have that element. And the diplomatic way that he approached this, I think, is really fascinating from, if nothing else, an anthropological sort of study of Michael Bay.
2: It's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I hated this movie, but Michael Bay may be Shakespeare.
2: Well, because I, when I watch it, you know, and uh, listening to the director's commentary, there's that moment where basically he's talking about the Midwest and he's such a cynic when he's talking about the Midwest. He's basically like, these fucking idiots – Don't know what they're doing.
0: I think you get that from, like, what he shows as, like, America. Like, he basically shows, like, Leave it to Beaver America when the president's speaking. You know, it's like-
3: Norman Rockwell paintings. Yeah,
0: it's like folks in overalls gathering in front of the tube TV and stuff, like-
2: So, and I'll say that's, I think that's partly where his background as a photographer because mm-hmm. those images as still images, I think really beautiful. I mean, I think he does a really beautiful job like capturing that Americana. Now that sequence, which Ben Affleck got real
1: emotional about <laughs>
2: like
1: in, in the commentary, he, yeah.
2: in the commentary. Yeah, he got very emotional about saying like how much he loved it. Um, you know, I I do think that little like three minute, four minute, however long it is, is, is a relatively effective little scene. And it's a little short film within this gargantuan, massive film. Now, yeah. I think what is important about this movie and why I think it kind of works uh, on some level is that if you don't like that movie, don't worry. The chase thriller is coming next. Don't worry. The beat the clock, uh, escape from the uh, the mirror portion of the movie that's coming he has every 15 minutes he's got a restart for a brand new yeah uh, a film so if one film doesn't work for you maybe the next one will now i think certain little vignettes work a lot better than others and i think some of them are incredibly effective the first hour in really hour and 30 minutes of the movie i was like man this is moving incredibly quickly it's moving incredibly fast he's doing a great job of setting up character Within 20 seconds of meeting a character, you understand their motivations, you understand what they're there for, and then another 20 seconds later, he cuts to the next character, he does the same thing. And I'll say, I do think Billy Bob Thornton is pretty extraordinary in this movie.
3: Agreed. He- That's the one thing I came away from with this movie was how good Billy yeah. Bob Thornton was in it. Yeah, he
2: really kind of knocked me out. Like I was watching it and I was like, you know what? It's really hard being the straight man. But he brings the type of integrity to this role that is very difficult in this kind of role.
1: I actually think it grounds the whole film uh, in, in, because it, it is not this comic over the t- – and, and it is at times. But because he's there, NASA feels like NASA. NASA doesn't feel like a pure joke, although – I know we're going to harp on the commentary a lot here, but Michael Bay seems to think actual NASA is a bit of a joke from what I can tell. He's just like, nothing sexy there. I went, I went to Michigan and it wasn't sexy. So I shot a sexy version. It's the weirdest thing.
0: He keeps talking about how bad it smells. <laughs> <laughs>
1: two, two things Michael Bay thinks about NASA. It stinks and it's not sexy. I think the thing that
2: Billy Bob really does bring to it, I think he brought it. And I think this is partly one thing that made me sad about the second half of Billy Bob Thornton's career is that, He's only had one real movie like this, which was Friday Night Lights, that had this kind of integrity to it. Otherwise, people cast him as kind of the weirdo or the freak or the bad Santa. And I think he's really good at playing that straight man to the point where he brings a real humble sincerity to it. And when you watch him, you're like, I believe that guy's a character amongst all these cartoons. Sure. And then he does. I think he brings a genuine emotion to it.
0: You definitely need that to pull everything kind of together because he's kind of he's got this dirty dozen sort of thing of really big personalities all over the place with the the miners and then to a to a lesser extent as it kind of goes on the astronauts as well. So I, there's there's something that you need in that like he's just a he's the anchor of everything really.
2: Well, I'll say, like, let's compare him to Nick Fury from the Avengers, okay? You know, the Avengers movies, they are what they are. They're these big, gargantuan things. I will say, I promise you, Nick Fury certainly probably has more screen time over those films. And I can't tell you anything about him. Captain Marvel, I'm going to leave out. But any of those Avengers movies, which are probably a pretty good correlation to these, something like Armageddon, I honestly think... Beelzebub Thornton does so much more with so little. He has very little to do, and he really does bring a humanity to it. And Now we've talked about somebody who has like 14 lines in the movie, but I think he brings a genuine sincerity to it. Um, whereas all of the ragtag group of people, you know, I the thing I was impressed with kind of leaving the watch this time was that Look at Owen Wilson. This guy just came out of nowhere a couple of years after bottle rocket. And he is a fully formed character. He literally crafts the Owen Wilson persona in one movie. He's like, you know what? I'm never going to get a chance at this again. Like I'm probably never going to be in a big movie. And then it was like, people caught on people thought it was this charming movie star quality. And he really does jump off the screen a little
0: bit. That, that was really amazing watching it with, I totally forgot he was in this movie. And I didn't, and as I'm watching it, I wasn't thinking about, you know, what has he done before? What is he like? Where does, I wasn't thinking about where does the Owen Wilson personality, the whoa, that was more Joey Lawrence, actually, I think, um, or Christopher wow. Walken.
1: Wow. What? Wow. 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 Yeah. Wow. Where does, scariest like, environment imaginable. That's what? all you had to say. Just, just scariest environment imaginable.
0: <laughs> but where does that kind of come in? And, this is really maybe the first time that we see that on screen displayed, but it really like it feels like he is he is just playing Owen Wilson and not in a bad way either, but in a in a way that is it's it's entertaining i I was telling Peterson, you and Jake that it kind of reminded me of John Malkovich and Man in the Iron Mask where like. Everyone's doing their own thing in that movie. Like that, that whole thing, that whole movie is willy nilly. But then, like, you've got John Malkovich, who's just like, I'm just going to play John Malkovich. It doesn't matter. Gerard Departout has, has a French accent, but then Gabriel Byrne doesn't. I don't care. And <laughs> who, gives, who cares? Yeah. Really and, and so that's like, sort of what Owen was. And also, like, his character is so inconsequential inconsequential like he doesn't
2: do anything yeah he doesn't he, he doesn't zero
0: art. he's just there to like add a little bit of texture and he does it
1: well and i think that's what's what's great about this whole ensemble cast that they have it's like this symphony of different characters who are all all like playing off of each other but also not not critical to the plot but they easy easily could have been a bunch of extras and they're not they all have really distinct established personalities and and it feels like it's this full group going to accomplish this task. I just love how it it elevates the everyman to hero status. And to compare this to something like Avengers, I think is is completely legitimate because it is showing superheroes. This is almost an origin story of these these superheroes who are going to go to space and save Earth. Like the Avengers movies, also make no scientific sense. They also make no logical sense on what's going on. This wouldn't really happen. But I, that's what I love about this movie. it is it is this this great fantasy of what if one guy has to save the world was this the
2: year this was the year before Michael Clark Duncan came on the scene with the uh, Green Mile, which is like the guy's only real performance, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: He came on and I mean, he doesn't look like a human being.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, like he shows up on the screen and you're like, "Who is this guy?" And they what do they do? They name him Bear. Um, he looks like a bear. Like they literally like have this shorthand of characters where they quickly cycle through them so you know, okay, within five minutes you know everyone on the team.
0: Let let me ask you guys this. So apparently the original script focused way more on sort of the Harry Stamper Dan Truman characters as sort of our our leads and and I guess sort of a divide of, you know, you've got Truman who's more of the straightforward straight thinking and then Stamper who's the hothead. What do you guys think about the hypothetical of the movie that is just more focused on kind of middle-aged Bruce Willis and Billy Bob Thornton instead of bringing in um the the rough i mean i guess aj's sort of like a han solo type
2: he says he's more the han solo type he literally quotes it
0: that's true i forgot about that
2: which was ad-libbed
0: but i mean what do you guys think about that hypothetical like more i guess adult version of this movie
1: Do do you want to know what i honestly think about it i honestly think titanic might have ruined michael bay's career I, I pretty much hate the love story in almost every Michael Bay movie. It's dumb and it's stupid and it doesn't need to be there. And if you look at The Rock and what's in that movie versus what's in many of the other ones, I, I actually think the love story works here. It's fine. It adds a lot of emotional weight between Harry and his daughter and it works really well. But in a lot of his other films, it is not needed and is, is look at Pearl Harbor. That is all I have to say for that. But if they didn't have the love story in this movie... Uh, would we still have had somebody's dad singing a song during a sex scene with the daughter would that have happened? <laughs> That's one of those
0: like little vignettes that definitely feels like, you know, Michael Bay comes from a commercial and music video background and definitely has that feeling to the way everything is staged from like the establishing shot of, you've got this big Panavision, like 45 millimeter lens bowing at the edges Kind of setting up, oh, we're by a lake and we've got these lights in the trees and this BMW, which is product placement, because as Michael Bay says, <laughs> this film's expensive, and so we gotta pay for some shit. Um, and then go into the like and the the fact that apparently the animal cracker scene was written for Liv Tyler specifically, like she wasn't sure about taking the role, and they're like, Oh, we wrote this this scene. She's like, Oh, yeah, that's good. I like it so bizarre.
2: Well, the thing that bothers me so much about that scene is um, I do think it serves a pretty quick purpose and it makes you invest in that love story it's just a little bit more than you may have. But I think what's really frustrating about that whole like 10 minute sequence is that you've got the scene with Will Patton where he meets his son or he goes to see his son again, which I think is a pretty like moving like 45 seconds. I I don't know how long it is, but
0: well, he does it. He does in like three cuts. An amazing thing where it's like you see him show up and it's like oh his his ex-wife and then it cuts to him and then it cuts back and the kid walks out and you have all the information that you need for that backstory
1: no it, it is so economical that's what Bay
2: does really well in this film I think that's what he's really good at and then I think what's really frustrating though is that you watch that scene and you watch the Harry Stamper and uh Truman moment where he says I really wish I was up yeah, there yeah. and All that, And then you cut to the strip club and it's this cartoonish way over the top moment where I think Steve Buscemi, obviously it is like it's his character saying, hey, let's borrow $100,000. Let's blow our last night out on earth like crazy because that guy's got a death wish and he's crazy. Um, But what's frustrating about that is that you have these genuine moments where I think Bay does a pretty good job of setting up emotion and then paying it off and building character. And then he succumbs to what I think is Bay's worst tendencies. And he really does like that strip club scene. I hate everything about it. I hate the way it looks. I hate the way like that looks like
0: the dialogue, the
2: genuine, like the dialogue's terrible where Steve Jimmy throws a dollar and says probably a hundred dollar bill and says, why don't you go buy a neck? And like, I think the, if it wasn't so visually garish, It wouldn't be as bad. But I think visually, I I see it and I'm like, no strip club in the world looks like this.
3: I think you guys are really hitting on why um, this movie doesn't work for me. And I think that's because it feels overstuffed. Mm -hmm. Like if he were to take – you know, eliminate the strip club scene and let's spend some time with uh, Will's character. What's his name? Will Will Patton. uh, Will Patton, yeah. Chick. Um, Spend a little time with him or – you know, spend more time with uh uh Billy Bob Thornton and Bruce Willis getting to know each other or whatever, you know, like kind of get rid of some stuff in there because it's so overbloated and we're moving so fast and it never feels like we really slow down that much. That's probably, you know, to get to know the characters and that's probably my issue mainly with the film.
2: Bruce Willis in the director's commentary says, "We had this scene where I went and talked to my father in the movie and I want that scene, right? Like I want the scene where Bruce Willis essentially says goodbye to his father instead of the strip club scene cuz you know what, Rock Hound, Steve Buscemi. Sure, I like Steve Buscemi, but do I want that scene?
0: Chris, I think we might be on kind of the same wavelength here in I I kind of wish this movie was whittled down a little more to where it was a little less of a Dirty Dozen story and a little a little more about Specific characters within, you know, you can still have colorful characters on the outside, but really focus on a few. And I mean, I think if it was if it was Harry Stamper, uh, Dan Truman and Chick, Will Patton's character, they could really drive home a a really emotional story uh, or three emotional stories themselves without Mm -hmm. getting muddied in in other things. I mean, I think the the whole thing between AJ and Grace, you know, Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler, it probably is just a problem with the fact that okay, we're coming off of the huge success of Titanic and we've got to have this thing so let's write it in, let's let's shorten it because I I think Uh, Liv Tyler's character in general is like, I don't think she's necessarily the greatest actress, but I also think it is a thankless role she's playing throughout the entire thing. Like her everything that she has to do towards the end where she's saying, Oh, you, that's my family up there. Don't do this, which is such a short sighted sort of um, anger because it's like, well, if, If they don't do if they don't do something, everyone's going to die. So it really doesn't matter. Like zeroing in on two people versus the entire world of destruction. (laughs) Like that really doesn't. So it's just that character. And it's not her fault, but that character is really poorly fleshed out. But I feel like those characters, if they were tamped down some, it may make the film as a whole a bit better.
2: Titanic was released December 19th uh 1997 so armageddon was released that summer of 98 on july 1st okay that is six months all right i guess they could have filmed some of that romantic stuff in the interim but honestly i don't buy the titanic stuff because look titanic didn't really start making a lot a lot of money until february because people were like Oh, let's – this. everyone thought Titanic was going to be a big old bust. They thought it was going to be an absolute bust and make zero money and cause the studio all this money. And Michael Bay probably was watching the box office receipts and then finally in February was like, oh, look at that. This thing make a bunch of money. But that's four months from release basically. He's not going to add a love story. Like that's that's crazy.
1: Like, I do think they it, said they went back and shot an additional scene and it could have got a more of a focus in the editing.
2: That was the Maybe. animal crackers. That yeah. was the animal crackers. They, they filmed that scene, which is honestly, I think like pillow talk scenes, like that's pretty good. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty memorable little pillow talk scene where you, if you were to say animal crackers movies, I'd say anybody who's seen type or uh, sorry, Armageddon is going to say, yep it's Armageddon. And I think that's the big thing for me is that uh, something like that and cracker scene, it does feel a little bit chopped in there, but a lot of the film I think does hold up pretty substantially. Now I think it starts really engagingly. It, it kind of brings you into the world really smoothly, which we've barely talked about the first 30, 40 minutes of the movie. Um, but I think that first 30 or 40 minutes is really effective in building atmosphere building character but also building dread making you understand why this asteroid is so destructive I think that's what Bay does really well and then he turns around and he says "All right, well here are the characters who are going to destroy it it's the global killer Here the people who are going to destroy it and that's I think what he does pretty well is he builds character pretty well in this second half of the movie Um, and I think really effectively with the Willis character which you barely talked about Bruce Willis but I think he does you know bring a pretty good integrity of the role. He's kind of faded away and become an actor who will take paychecks who are like, they're like, Oh, if you film in Ukraine, then you're going to get extra money and there's no taxes. So you can film in Ukraine. Um, So now he's like, Oh, I'll go film in Ukraine. But back then he was like, you know what? I actually care about what I'm doing. He did actually, I think, care a lot about the role and it shows a little bit.
0: I'm not debating that at all. And I do think you bring up a good point about like where he starts the film. I mean, he starts this film at the third act of many other films, more or less. Like I admire the fact that he says, okay, we're going to start big with something like this. And then we're only going to get bigger. I think the, some of the characters there that, you know, you've got uh Mr. Cooper driving the taxi. You've got, Eddie Griffin, Eddie Griffin, and the dog that attacks Godzilla, which is a blatant attack on another film coming out around the same time in the summer, masterpiece, um, starring Matthew Broderick, um, and you like so some of that is maybe a little dodgy, but I do I do appreciate the way that it's just like okay, we're starting at a ten, and then we're only going up from there. That's how. That's how dire the circumstances are that we are setting with this film.
1: I, I hear your complaints, both both Chris's. I hear your complaints, <laughs> and I, I understand them. And I am not in any way saying that the things that you want changed would not have made this a better film. Because it would have been a better film, and it could have been a better film, and it could have strived for more and all of those things. What I'm saying is this is one of the best movies ever made for popcorn for sitting down and watching it for enjoying it it hits every single note that i want to see in a movie in like pretty much end of sentence and and there's almost no better execution of this type of film maybe ever made and if i think it has the spirit of a western at its core but because it is this high-tech, high tech high CG or or lots of cg lots of uh, special effects action movie from the 90s, it's not going to get the respect of something that would have come out and played these same notes in a different style 40 years earlier.
0: But it's not, I mean, the Western that you're describing would have been more or less a B movie. This is not a B movie. This is a, like, I mean, and, and I think that's part of it for me as well is, like, the approach to this movie is so much about, and I understand the financial aspect of we're making a movie that is so expensive. We have to appeal to everyone because otherwise we're not going to make our money back. That's the only way that you really it's, it's the safe way to make a big budget world ending sort of film. I understand that, but there's so much that goes into this sort of weird analysis of like, I mean, they talk in the commentary, I think um, both Brockheimer and Bay talk in the commentary multiple times about how, oh, we bought it. We, we brought in the best uh, screenwriter, you know, you could buy to, to fix this up or fix that up. You know, Robert Town was also brought in to do like all sorts of sort of just little things with punching stuff up and and what because it's it's that sort of thing where they're like, oh well, it's not working. Let's just throw money at it until it's fixed. And there's something about that like thing that that kind of gets me like I understand that not everything is an art house film and this is certainly not an art house film. But Mm -hmm. that approach to filmmaking is so kind of icky and ultimately results in something that is generally milk toast. I will say for everything that went into this and how milk milk toast it could be, it's still a hell of a lot of fun in moments, but I feel like that is the sort of thing about this movie is it appeals to me in moments, but overall doesn't like any time you have something with is it Rock Hound? Is that uh Steve yeah. Like that character is just terrible. With the exception of I do I do appreciate on a like so bad it's good level once he gets space dementia. <laughs> <laughs> because what is what is space dementia? Other and it said so straight faced. He has <laughs> space dementia. He has space dementia
1: because he's firing the guns that they installed on. The, I, 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 look. Why
0: are there guns? <laughs> Why are there guns on multiple things for this mission to
1: and they go? They packed a handgun. They packed a handgun. I don't understand. It what? What? It doesn't matter. It's it's all just to make <laughs> selling things. toys. Dog, come
0: on. Well, and that's that's that exactly it. It's it's to appeal to the broadest number of demographics by just packing in as much as you can. So, like, if the thing that you're seeing right now doesn't catch your attention, maybe the thing in five minutes will.
2: Hold on. I've got a real question. <laughs> real question. Who cried?
0: I did not.
1: Oh, my wife, like five times. My wife started crying, like, by 20 minutes in. She oh, yeah, yeah, my wife cried at the beginning. She cried at the end. She cried at the nuke. She cried all over. Yeah. Because the the movie works. It flat out works. Will
0: Patton's story is probably the closest I would have gotten to crying if I was to get close to crying. Because I, I think that is a very... That's if a, a man were capable nice... of
1: crying, this would be a movie I'd no, bring a tear to. his that's not.
0: Eye. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. I cried. Yeah. Cried when I saw Inside Out in the theater, and that was with a whole bunch of children around. That was really creepy.
1: You didn't have a
2: kid then.
0: I didn't even have a kid then. Yeah, it was. It was weird. I was just there alone because I was reviewing it for this podcast. Um, <laughs> but the like, I I think the economy of his story is really great. It's just you get what. 10 minutes tops of really any of that happening and then it's packed into and so it's just it's this sort of thing where you're gonna get a mixed bag and that mixed bag is not my cup of tea
1: i, I hear you and i and i definitely hear your milk toast comment and and i think the thing that saves this or not even saves it because i think it's just effective but it is not soulless it definitely has a soul it definitely has a heart it has a purpose. It has and, a it, voice. and it achieves exactly what it's trying to do. It it, it it actually doesn't. So many movies fail. So many movies aim for this same target and it is a very, very hard target to hit a uh and I guess it's business of film when you're looking at it this way, but across all the segments, across all ages and, and gender, like everything. This just this just hits the target while not being a, a bad bland movie. You know, I think if we were talking about independence
3: day, <laughs> like that it means the same thing to me that Armageddon, I think mm-hmm. means to you, you know, like
2: I, I, I don't think you're wrong there. I think what, you know, I, when I look back at it for me, the biggest thing that kind of pulls me to Armageddon a little bit is one I saw it at a certain age and it really did kind of respond to me at that certain age. But also I think Michael Bay, this is the movie where I'd say, this is the one you can argue he's an auteur. Now I think every movie after this, mm-hmm. he's trying to play to a certain audience and mm-hmm. he loses it, and he can't really communicate it. I mean, all the Transformers movies, I've oh god damn it, I've seen all of them too. Um, hey, I've seen all the Transformers.
0: Peterson, yeah, he made he made yeah. Pain and Gain after this though.
2: Yeah, I've seen that thing too.
0: That 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 movie's a masterpiece. <clears throat> yep come on josh larson no no, it is it is like that and the rock are are god i i I really like
2: so i i do like if it's talking about michael bay's career i think the rock is incredibly effective i think armageddon is pretty effective and i think has a genuine emotional sweep by the end of it now anything after that the island that thing can kick
0: bricks. Isn't, the, isn't there like an extended fight where he has to fight someone in the Xbox Dome or something? In the I, haven't I haven't
2: seen it since I've worked at Blockbuster 15, 14 years ago. I'm pretty
0: sure that happened.
2: Yeah, probably. And then you look at Transformers, the 2007 one, which I think is probably the closest he gets to this. A movie I don't really like, but one that I think is okay. And then all the other Transformers are garbage. I think 13 Hours is uh, pretty... It's pretty effective what it's doing but not very good I think he's just one of those guys who he has an altruistic vision sticks to it can put out the movie very effectively and he gives a damn whether or not people like us are gonna care about it he really does I I don't think he cares he's playing to the cheap seats of middle America he like he literally says like oh middle America they're idiots like that's what he says.
0: He's not quite Harvey Weinstein, but, uh, no, but that that's, and that's sort of what I was getting at with the, I think he's proficient at what he does. I think he's good at what he does, but he's not my cup of tea. Like I would rather watch Michael Bay behind the scenes feature length documentaries than watch Michael Bay films. Most of the time, I think the way he works is fascinating. I think The fact his background as a photographer and as a commercial and music video director very much makes him uh, someone who I mean, because sometimes you have these these directors that come into uh, big budget films that sort of are just journeymen and Brett Ratner or that Mm -hmm. sort of person where it's just like they're going through the paces like Michael Bay's, you know, films are undeniably Michael Bay. And they are extremely complicated. And he pulls off really amazing things. It's just I don't particularly like his form of storytelling, especially when it gets bigger and more massive and trying to appeal to everyone, because I think he leans into his worst tendencies, which are just fetishizing the image for. As, as the first thing, and then story comes after that, always. And so it's just an assault of kind of beautifully composed, really chaotic stuff going on that feels fun, but then can also feel like whiplash by the end.
1: Right, and he has such a, a, I think, a huge effect on just the way especially action cinema is today. And I don't think anybody's as good as showing that action on screening, making you able to follow it with it being chaotic, but extremely, extremely watchable. You don't get lost. And that's sort of what the essay that accompanies this Criterion Collection film says is this is a visual masterpiece.
0: I think there are a lot of people who have tried to rip off that chaotic Mm -hmm. style who just like... I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of films that were made in the early to mid aughts that sort Mm -hmm. of have that they were trying to rip off him and Paul Greengrass, essentially, and fail miserably because they don't understand what Michael Bay understands as far as like how it all comes together. They're just saying, oh, well, that style
1: looks fun. I think he could have been like the ultra high budget Ron Howard. Where he could turn in a very excellent performance, and and I, I say that because I compare this structurally a lot to Apollo thirteen, which came out I think four years before this movie. It it plays very similar notes, but just uh, if it if it were on you know five thousand milligrams of testosterone.
2: I think <laughs> Apollo thirteen is really. I mean that that to me is Ron Heiter's masterpiece. It's so Agreed. good. Agreed. I think it's exceptional. It's kind of. Big budget popcorn filmmaking that does extraordinary things. I think he's really grounded with his characters. I think also it's partly because you have Tom Hanks, Gary Sinise, Kevin Bacon, Ed Harris. Like you've got. Yeah, a- it's
1: also an ensemble cast movie. It it yeah. is. It has the same DNA running through his veins. But I think where Ron Howard picks better movies and is just a, a frankly a better director. Uh, of he's both more actors. controlled, he's more controlled. Yeah. But but I think Michael Bay could have done that same sort of thing, turning good performances, turning back. But he he either has too much money attached to him, or he's too bankable, or he he's too say, a victim of his own success. I don't know what it is, but I don't think he'll ever make. A, a small movie pain
0: and gain exists guys okay
1: i didn't see pain and gain you, you called me out on it i will go and watch pain i and did gain. unfortunately it was
0: like 35 million dollars it's great it's really good also you know what ed harris in that movie as well as the rock as well as apollo 13 maybe ed harris is the key to really good michael bay
2: i forgot <laughs> i forgot ed harris is in a uh, pain and gain yeah because you know what All I think about is Mark Wahlberg thinking like, man, this is the kind of (laughs) character I need to play. (laughs) Screw all my pussy science teacher characters. This is my guy. The guy who's just lifting weights, ready to kill people, like that insane people.
0: Here's my thing on Pain and Gain. I feel like had Michael Bay directed it, but had it come out with someone else's name as director, people would have liked it so much more. Like there is this weird thing where, because Michael Bay has become... A specific identifiable product as a director. For better or worse. I think it got a lot of shade that it wouldn't have gotten because I think it is also one of his more critical films. And I think that's I think that's something that's great about The Rock, is the way that it deals in gray morality. Whereas like something The Rock the Person? The, the Rock the film. <laughs> um, whereas like Armageddon, it's just patriotic pornography like the entire film from start to finish is just like hell yeah american boner let's go apollo 13 is that as well but in a classier way you know More more subtle way yeah it's you know, it's trying to hide the boner, I guess. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Apollo 13 says, you see what I got here?
1: But but the, the, the thing I think about, about Michael Bay in general, uh, and especially his older works, I think people like to call Michael Bay out, and this goes to your point, as being a director that they don't like. Because you can sound really smart because you know a director, you know one you don't like, you know he makes that McDonald's, Walmart-level thing that everybody wants it's just this mass produced and it's really easy to call him out and Say, no i don't like michael bay movies but i think it it takes away from his early films that that really showed promise and talent and i think that because armageddon shares so much dna with those later michael bay films it is so easy to lump it in there and say that this is not a good movie this is garbage this is bad and i i think that is doing this film a disservice
0: I don't disagree with you there, but I think it is the fact that this is the genesis of everything else that comes after. I think this yep. is this is the watershed moment for Michael Bay.
3: He needs to put a movie out under a pseudonym, and then we'll tell whether or not we actually like his films.
0: <laughs> no, that's but that's I, what I I'm agree. saying with Pain and Gain. Yeah, like Jake, you need to watch Pain and Gain. That's my that's my next like.
2: I personally think I like listening to the commentary. He's like, this to me is a movie. I think he really does say, like, this is the apex of what I can do. If I went back and remade this, he had a couple of things he'd redo. But I think this is the thing that he says, this defines me as a director. This is the thing that really drives me, that pushes me, that really drives me over the edge. And he does. I mean, he does say some things that I think are kind of very belittling to certain audiences. But at the end of the day, I think he's pretty insightful about what he's trying to make. And he says, you know what? Like, this is a pretty pure distillation of like my ethos and what I want to give people. And that to me, like, you know, he's not quite my temperature. And by that, I mean, he's not my temperature. Um, You know, I'm a guy who like PTA, maybe my head director. That's my temperature. Like Michael Bay is pretty far from that. But like, I think he does come forward with a pretty significant amount of Saying, this is what I believe. This is my movie. And he gives it to you. And you may walk out of something like Armageddon and say, you know what? That doesn't really hold up. Or it does hold up. I think the full scope of Armageddon, whether or not every scene works, it doesn't. Not every scene works. I think there's some misogyny going on. You have no <laughs> women in the movie. You know, there's a lot of unpacking you can do. But I think the pure whole of Armageddon works pretty effectively. And I think he does a pretty good job of showing you exactly what he wants to show you. And I think part of that is he gets pretty good performances from his actors. And I also think he's got a story worth telling. And he may derail that story sometimes for like the strip club scene. But he gets it back on track pretty quickly because he knows in 10 minutes we're going to have a different story. We're going to now be on the space station now the space station turns into the catapulting around the moon and then the catapulting of the moon turns into one of the shuttles is dead one of the shuttles isn't so now we're having a crimson tide moment where we're sitting on the shuttle and now there's a moment of uh anarchy where william fichtner is saying no we need to drop the nuke and go right now and willis says you know what no i can make this death
4: oh, they're reactivating the bomb Coming back online, sir. Oh, jeez. Here we go again. What are you doing up here? Why did you even bother to make the trip? To do the right thing, to see that it's done. For God's sakes, think about what you're doing. Why are you listening to someone that's 100,000 miles away? We are here. Nobody down there can help us. If we don't get this job done, everybody's gone. One minute. I've been drilling holes in the earth for 30 years, and I have never, never missed the depth that I have aimed for. And by God, I am not going to miss this one. I will make 800 feet. 42 seconds. But I can't do it alone, Colonel. I need your help. You swear on your daughter's life, on my family's, that you can hit that mark. I will make 800 feet. I swear to God, I will. And let's turn this bomb off.
2: Michael Bay, I think what he really believes in is like the American spirit, the American dream can really change things. And he's got this very 1950s view of America, which sometimes works really well. Like that works really effectively in the, I think the animal cracker scene, you know, I can tell you right now. I'm tell you right now, there's no doubt in my mind that if you played that clip for 100 people, 80 people are going to say, they're in love. Like They're going to have that reaction, whereas maybe 20% don't, but I think a lot of people are going to go out saying, you know what, that worked for me, and that had a pretty effective pull uh,
3: for me. All right, guys. So there's one thing I think that we all need to answer, and I did some research on this before this, but – Why is Armageddon in the Criterion Collection? Because that's uh, I've debated that forever. Like, Armageddon and the Rock, why is it in the Criterion Collection?
1: Practically, like, should I try to justify it as a film? Or why, like, practically, I think it is part of the Criterion Collection? practically I would say practically because it's spine number 40 and they needed a big name movie to land there <laughs> like like I' I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that's what I think it is like it's something they could loosely justify as being a a visual masterpiece mm-hmm. something that deserved a high quality transfer and DVD and all of those things yeah. and I think it was early enough in the criterion collection existence that it fit the bill. Of something that yeah. that could deserve that for cinephiles or or home home cinephiles, whatever you want to call that, at the time. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head um, because it's like the first year of the Criterion
3: Collection, so they needed something to garner money. You know, Tokyo Story and Seven Samurai might be great, mm-hmm. but it's not going to sell like Armageddon. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Armageddon is one of visual kind of it is a feast for the eyes. I think it's a visual kind of masterpiece in a lot of ways. Maybe not my cup of tea, but, like, it really does, like, pop visually. And I do think Michael Bay, from an editing standpoint, it is a two-and-a-half-hour movie that has however many characters. You get character motivations, character justifications very quickly. And he does edit. I think he edits the hell out of this movie. I think it is a movie that, in lesser hands, would have been a three-and-a-half-hour Debacle Like heaven's gate. And I think he does wrangle in a pretty cohesive, pretty entertaining movie. I think that's something that I think really pulls criterion in because it really is. If you were going to look at it, it's one of the biggest, most crazy movies you're ever going to watch. But he does a really good job of pulling it all together.
0: I, I think you make a good point there, Peterson, in that I while I disagree a little bit editorially, I, I get like what you're saying as well. Like I think in the, the hands of another director, another director wouldn't have even shot the film to fit together the way he does. And that's that's what I think I love yeah. about editing wise, I think he
2: makes some weird choices, but I think he does streamline the movie in a way and yeah. makes some editorial choices that pull it together
1: i would say like micro like like frame by frame editing is is a 10 out of 10 for me i didn't notice anything there but macro editing kind of how things progress yes. things like that i would say it could be called in more than a question but i'm gonna def- i'm gonna defer to to chris gallagher on this one
0: well no i i think it is it's personal preference and it's one of these things where i keep saying not my cup of tea, not my cup of tea, but that's really what it comes down to. I think there is something to the fact that he is able to juggle all these balls and he puts them in a place where, I mean, as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking this is two and a half hours long. I don't know what you take out logistically without making the entire house of cards fall down. So that's pretty impressive in and of itself. The But then the sort of approach of... Creating the House of Cards to begin with doesn't really appeal to me. But I see why someone like Criterion would say, well, this is a very unique approach. This is something that no one else is operating on this level. This deserves to be preserved, even if it has its flaws narratively or in whatever way, because it is to go back to my claim of the anthropological examination of Michael Bay. It's, Mm -hmm. it's this way to say, here's a guy working at the top of his game in a way that really feels unhuman to pull all of this together. And maybe it doesn't all work for you, but this is what he created. And so I appreciate that. I, I will say of the two films he has in the collection, the rock, Definitely, definitely my favorite over over that, and I'm a little saddened that it's, what, like 116 or something? It comes far later, but I understand also from the uh, from the financial sort of place why that makes sense. And that fits perfectly into my narrative of, like, basically Armageddon is Michael Bay saying, here's a movie for the masses, it costs a lot of money, so it needs to make a lot of money, pay me money, you're going to enjoy it.
3: Yeah, it represents the genre really well, and I think that's what the Criterion Collection is about. I mean, like the Blob is in the Criterion Collection, yeah. the 1950s, and which is fun, and I think it represents the genre of what it's doing very well. And I think Armageddon does the same.
0: Well, thing. and and the genre of the time as well, like because the Blob exactly. isn't a great yeah. film, but it mm-hmm. is like a kind of stamp of what those films at that time were. Mm-hmm.
3: Agreed.
2: Well, so with like to me, I look at like Caity's cinema. Every year they have one movie that is that weird outlier. Yeah, There's that weird little like, how the hell did this thing come up? Is that Armageddon? I mean, it's not on their 98 list. 98, you know, the weird outliers. Probably Snake Eyes. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: Titanic. Titanic is on that list. But uh, for me, like I look at it, I'm like, well, is that kind of that idea where Coyote Cinema is like, hey, one movie a year is that big budget weird Thing that's going to make the list is that Armageddon. Is that how it gets in the uh, Criterion?
0: Maybe, but to that, it like, why isn't Mad Max Fury Road in the Criterion collection yet?
2: Oh, it should be, but because it's it, not as good as some movies
3: that came out that year. Oh, yeah, just, um, I think it, it's the Mad Max is more of a rights issue. Uh, probably, who made that probably film? So.
0: It's it's Warner Brothers and. uh Village Roadshow is that?
3: Yes, yeah, I think something like that. They want to make the money off the DVD sales yeah, or whatever. Surely, not willing to let it go.
1: So, because I want to go on a, an equally long rant now about how much I love Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> <laughs> just as much as I love Armageddon, we're gonna have to to just stop me and shut me up. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch over to Chris to give us his beer recommendation because if any movie has ever justified somebody sitting down with a beer to watch it, it's Armageddon. Chris, what should the Midnight Warriors be be drinking?
0: Well, I don't think I'm going to disappoint Michael Bay with uh, you know his subtle sensibilities with this pick because I am going with DKML from Founders Brewing Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And DKML, in case you were wondering, stands for Dick Kicker Malt Liquor. This comes from their 2017 Barrel Age series uh, that they. This is a series they kicked off in 2017 where. Every couple of months, they release a new barrel-aged beer. Sometimes it's one of their standards, like uh, Kentucky Breakfast Stout, which I've recommended on here a few times. Sometimes it's something new. DKML was a one-off. They only did in 2017. Maybe they will have some more in the future. I don't know. But if you want to get your hands on it, you're going to have to try like a beer trade group or something uh, along those lines for it. But uh, as you might have guessed, this is an imperial malt liquor aged in bourbon barrels so this is coming in at a pretty hefty 14.2 percent which yeah for even for malt liquor it's high and then a modest 38 ibu so not terribly bitter uh, but it has a lot of other stuff going on with it in particular obviously the booziness and the slightly burniness up front which i mean as far as comparing it to other malt liquors not so bad it's definitely a boozy beer but there's enough going on in the complexity of it that um, it's not going to if you're if you're into something that's a that's a heavier you know a a double and imperial uh you'll probably be okay with it it also has a pretty interesting little starchy sweetness to it that comes from the corn and you know the the malt liquor essence of it um not my favorite of the barrel aged series but something that i was glad that i sought out and and tried and you know i was a little much like armageddon going back and revisiting armageddon i was a little worried about it just in Malt liquor's not really my thing. I was worried to order it and to try it. And I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did, which is about where I land with, uh, with Armageddon, not a film that I need to go back and watch again anytime soon. But at the same time, I'm glad I reappraised it because there are things that I definitely pulled out of it that I had totally forgotten or would have totally just kind of flown over my head in discussion of me putting it down. So um, I'm glad there's a, there was enough complexity there. And, and I feel like that's, as far as, you know, a, a malt liquor goes, you're not going to get much complexity. This is about as good as it's, it's going to get. That said, it was a dry hopped beer. So you're probably going to get the little, you know, it's not a terribly bitter beer, but you are probably going to get some skunkiness, in that range if you are to pick it up now but i don't know keep an eye out maybe they'll put out a dick kicker malt liquor 2020 it'd be perfect for uh, you know election season
1: <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know enough about beer to know if i should be offended by this recommendation or not so
0: <laughs> it's uh no it's i i could have i could have gone nasty and i did not Um, I do actually think this is sort of the perfect pairing for Armageddon.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Armageddon is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. I assume it's currently on TBS as we speak. It's definitely available at Hollywood Video. or of Midnight Party by Hollywood Video. (laughs) And like Chris said, you can always hunt down the out-of-print Criterion Collection DVD for what is one of the best commentaries I've ever listened to. It's its own crazy, insane Armageddon of commentaries. Uh, but you can get it for literally a buck fifty on Amazon. And if you've seen Armageddon, or, or honestly, if you haven't seen Armageddon, please tell us your thoughts or why, how you haven't seen this movie at hello at warstartsomidnight.com.
2: Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's four eight four four cinema.
0: Stick around, folks. Our really red recommendations are coming up next.
4: Looks like we made it. Look how far we've come, my baby. Might have took the long way. We knew we'd get there someday. And, and they said, I bet they'll never make it. But just look at us holding on. We're still together. Still going strong Still the way Still the one I've run
0: All right, guys, it is time for Really Red Recommendations once again. Chris, as our lovely guest here today, I would mm-hmm. love it if you would go first. What do you have to recommend for us?
3: Yeah, uh, a feel good TV show of the year. Uh, it's called Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really thought this show was very, very well done. Um, I love the way that they took their time. Like they. It's a five-episode series, you know, and they dive into things that you wouldn't necessarily consider when you think of something like Chernobyl. Uh, Things that are, of course, horrifying and disturbing, but they take the time with just the side characters that they don't necessarily have to deal with, Mm -hmm. but they want to deal with a lot of the stuff that goes on. And as a secondary recommendation, have you guys ever listened to Script Notes, the podcast? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Craig Mazin, from that podcast... Uh, is the showrunner and writer of Chernobyl. He did um, a podcast with Peter Seagal, like the HBO official podcast, and him and Peter Seagal talk about why they had to change things. Like, Craig Mazin didn't really... He wanted to be as honest and truthful as he could be, but he had to change things in order to be more dramatic and to do things. But uh, with this podcast, he talks about why and um, kind of... Explains why dramatically he would have to change something, and I think those two hand in hand together are uh, really great. It's just a really great show. I completely, wholeheartedly recommend it.
0: Fun fact: Peter Sagal, the the co-host of the the Chernobyl podcast, technically wrote *Dirty Dancing* Havana Nights, but what? didn't write it as a *Dirty Dancing* movie. He wrote it as like a dramatic film about like taking place in the time of the revolution. And then this producer was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Also, I'm looking to make a new dirty dancing movie and then retrofit it. And basically, I think he said that none of his dialogue is in the final film. Wait, wait, don't tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) See what you did there.
3: Yeah. Clever.
2: (laughs) Didn't he write all three hangover films? Peter Sagal? no 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 sorry, sorry sorry Peter uh Peter Mason Craig Mason Craig Mason sorry yeah sorry yeah.
3: he did a bunch of um comedy scary movie I think he did three and two uh I can pull it up real quick but yeah his he's mainly known for oh he did uh he wrote on hangover part two uh identity thief uh superhero movie scary movies three and huh. four and Rocket Man the nineteen ninety seven masterpiece Jake Jake,
1: I, I, I almost recommended Rocket Man, and then I almost said I recommended Rocket Man, uh, but wanted to not do that because I've done so before in order to recommend Half Baked, which also came out in 1998. I'm three steps ahead of you guys on Rocket Man. All right, <laughs> I love Rocket Man.
0: Well, Jake, let's leave us in anticipation. Peterson, what do you have to recommend?
2: Yeah, so I'm gonna piggyback on Chernobyl and say I had a really delightful, fun time at uh, the movies with When They See Us, which is Ava DuVernay's examination of the Central Park Five. The Central Park Five is a moment in New York history where these five young boys are convicted of raping a jogger in Central Park, and because of this, the city is kind of thrown up in, in some kind of upheaval, and Donald Trump actually makes an appearance in Episode Two. Obviously, it's all from Uh, commercials or from news footage, but it is a very in-depth examination of what these five young men went through. So the first, first episode is very much about how these young men got essentially apprehended and then coerced into saying what they should to the authorities. The second episode, which is kind of a star studded episode with Vera Farmiga as well as Joshua Jackson. um. Hmm. And Michael T. or Michael K. William um, from The uh, The Wire. He, yeah, he is one of the fathers, and essentially how these five young boys are very wrongfully put in jail. And then the third episode shows four of the five young boys and what their experience is like in jail. And then the fourth episode is almost exclusively about one young man's experience in jail. And it is a horrifying horrifying hour um it's one of those things that you know I'm incredibly glad I watched I don't think I'll ever go back to but Aver DuVernay her heart is obviously in the right place she shows this incredibly tumultuous time in these young men, men's lives um and then as viewers we are left to reckon with what that means what the for one of them what the th- I think 12 or 13 years in jail means for them. Um, Hmm. And it's an incredibly hard, hard watch. And I, you know, somebody who did not create Armageddon, I I did spend uh, some of this show with tears in my eyes because it is incredibly hard to watch. But it's also, I think, DuVernay leaves us with a bit of hope because, you know, luckily the – Central Park 5, they are exonerated of the crime eventually, I believe in 2001 or 2002. I don't have my facts exactly straight on the timeline, but I highly recommend this show. Uh, DuVernay is a director who I really like. I've liked her features, except for really uh, Wrinkle in Time, uh, but I do like uh, her first couple of features quite a bit, Uh, both um, her biopic kind of about MLK, and then also um, Middle of Nowhere, I think is really powerful film. So I think Ava DuVernay is one of those directors that is really powerful, is right at the top of her game, and I think she's going to be a really interesting voice moving forward for the next, you know, hopefully like 20, 30 years.
0: All right, that is a lot of emotional heft too. Maybe I should recommend to, Rocket Man. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah, we we need we need some levity, Jake. What do you What do you have to pile on here?
1: I don't know if it's levity, but it's a movie that I really really enjoy watching, and that's 1998's Armageddon. No, no, but <laughs> no, seriously, um, it, it is also a space movie. It is also about NASA, and you see one of the real life locations of an event from this movie. Or that this movie hints at, I guess, technically, uh, in Armageddon, and it's um, the right stuff. Uh, have Have you guys seen the right stuff? So good. Yes. Oh. very good. <sighs> nope,
2: I'm. Uh, I'm not on that train yet.
1: You You need to see. So it's it's from it's from 1983. So we're talking what 15 years before Armageddon, but it it covers the start of the U.S. space program. From when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier up until, um, I think, the first orbit of Earth. It stars uh, Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward, and, as we've already mentioned, the great Ed Harris.
2: Can we call it B.A. and A.A.? Before Armageddon and after Armageddon? There's really only two timelines.
1: <laughs> For, for for massive blockbusters, maybe, but this is this is not. I, I wouldn't call this a blockbuster.
2: Well, I love. I mean, Caleb Deschanel's uh, cinematographer is one of my favorites out there.
1: Oh, and there's some iconic shots in this movie. Really, some yeah, some really amazing stuff. It, I, I consider it a must-watch. It's uh, and I think I've seen it start to finish twice, but I've seen uh, seen it more than that. In, in bits and pieces and uh it's something i could revisit i'm not saying it's a 10 out of 10 but i do think it is it is a really really great film um uh, and especially if you are a space nerd like me i think i've seen so many so many sp- space movies at this point and just anything that has you know nasa sending people to to space is is right up right up my alley and so uh that includes Clint Eastwood Space Cowboys.
2: What's y'all's favorite space movie?
1: Clint Eastwood Space Cowboys. <laughs> uh. <laughs> no, it's probably Apollo 13.
2: That's where I fall to. I think Apollo 13 is probably on that. List. I'm not going to include Gravity and things like that, but like, actual space
1: movies like Apollo 13, probably.
0: Oh, we're we're talking like historical space movies.
1: NASA has to be present in the movie. That's the one requirement.
0: Such a good recommendation. Highly recommend uh, as well. Cosine. Where where can we see that, Jake?
1: Uh, all the all the standard movie streaming sites, wherever you typically stream movies, you'll be able to find the right stuff. Chris, what is your recommendation?
0: Well, Jake, my recommendation actually has, as, as we've been going on, seems to gather more and more slight connections here. So uh, my recommendation is the documentary from 2018, Hal, uh, directed by Amy Scott. This is about director Hal Ashby. And so first kind of loose connection is uh he worked with in his later career in the 80s he worked with uh, Robert Town some and there's interviews with him there's interviews with a bunch of people that he worked with Caleb Deschanel as well who shot the right stuff Haskell Wexler um who who shot some of uh Ashby's stuff Norman Jewison uh is probably the kind of jewel of this who kind of you know ashby came up as his editor they they kind of connected and then jewison really gave him uh the landlord as a film that he thought he was going to direct gave it to ashby and that kind of launched his directorial career um but it's a it's a loving sort of portrait of a really you know he's one of those directors who was very in tune with exactly kind of what he saw in humanity. And I think that's uh, to the other end of, you know, Michael Bay is all about spectacle and all about, you know, just giving you sort of this uh, shock to the senses. Whereas Ashby was so much about like getting down into really understanding his characters, even if they were complex or contradictory or, um, you know, really, you know, these guys who, so many times he has these sort of anti-hero characters where on the face you're like, Oh, but they're bad dudes, but you spend the time with them and you kind of understand. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I love Ashby's films, especially his run in the seventies. Um, it's a really great, insightful little documentary. I mean, a lot of times this sort of like sitting talking heads pieces are, uh, you know, you get stuff where it's like, Oh, that was cute. But, there wasn't a whole lot of information there that I didn't know. And there's a, you know, depending on how much you know about Ashby, maybe there is a bit of that here, but it's interesting to see both the people that he worked with and the people that he inspired kind of talking about him. David O. Russell, Alexander Payne, Judd Apatow, Adam McKay all make appearances as well as people who kind of came up on his work. It's a really great sort of celebration of uh, one of my favorite directors of all time and someone who I think is also highly influential in uh, the work of Wes Anderson, who we are soon to be talking about. So I felt it was fitting here. Um, you can rent it basically anywhere or if you have access to Canopy, the like library streaming service, it's available to watch there as well. Uh, that's how I saw it. It's great.
1: And another connection. I love Armageddon and you know I love Hal Ashby.
0: another connection (laughs) sure
1: and Armageddon and Harold and Maude two movies my wife cried during so (laughs) a really tight connection in my book
0: I'm looking forward to that, that complete
1: letterbox list and that's a wrap on another episode of War Starts at Midnight join us next time for our inaugural episode of The Magnificent Andersons our brand new series exploring the works of two American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson We'll kick things off with PTA's featured directorial debut starring Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Samuel L. Jackson, Hard 8.
0: Find us online at WarshartToMidnight.com for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, email us at hello at WarshartToMidnight.com. Or better yet, give us a call and leave a voicemail at 484 424 6362. Or just say hello on Twitter. You can find me at WSAMPOD.
1: I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm at Peterson W. Hill.
0: And uh, Chris, thank you for joining us. Where can people find you and your podcast if they would like to seek you out?
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. Come check us out at Casual Cinecast um, on Twitter or you can email us at casualcinecast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys and check out our C- Casually Criterion episodes, too. Uh, those are always a lot of
0: fun. What do you guys have coming up there?
3: So Justin's out this uh, this month, but I think next month we're going to do Weekend by Jean-Luc Godard. It's our first Jean-Luc Godard film from the collection.
1: Okay, nice. And, of course, next week we're going to do Toy Story 4. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at benrectormusic.com.
0: Thanks for listening, folks. And Chris, thank you once again for joining us. It was a pleasure.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. No more
3: nukes. No more
1: nukes. This is insane. He's got space dementia.
2: Maybe this is a good time to drop in. My actual Owen Wilson character story. (laughs) He was a patron of where I worked. Um, The first time I met him, he literally sat down at a table. It was over 4th of July weekend. I'm in the hotel. We were like three or 4% occupancy. So there was like five rooms occupied very, very low occupancy. So he jumps from table to table every like 10 minutes He's on the phone. The entire time we couldn't get an order. He asked why we couldn't get an order. He's trying to figure out what's going on. 15 minutes later, he leaves the restaurant, goes down to the front desk he's like, hey, can I ask you guys something? They're like, sure. He says, hey, will you watch my dog? The front desk is says, sure, we'll watch your dog. Not a problem. There's nobody in the hotel. There's like nine people in the hotel. So big deal. A couple hours go by and the front desk is like, what is going on? Where is this guy? He comes back like six hours later. And he's like... I'm I'm freaking out a little bit. He's like, I, did I leave my dog with you guys? (laughs) (laughs) And they said, yes, sir. We have got your dog. He is safely behind the desk. He's like, I thought he ran away on a walk. Like (laughs) dead serious, dead serious. So how much of that's actually Owen Wilson, like acting? I don't know. I'm not quite sure.